episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the hypnotoad himself, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? All glory to it. I'm uh, I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Uh, and, and not enjoying it much longer of our lockdown here in Melbourne to go. Fingers crossed we're into the closing straight of this this lockdown. Yep, Surely, yep. Yeah, number two. We've got to round out the trilogy, though. Come on. And the the third one's usually the worst one, isn't it? You can wait for the the, uh, the Matrix revolutions of lockdowns. (laughs) Oh, no. Don't be so cruel. The Godfather Part 3 of ISO. (laughs) I went back and rewatched that fairly recently, and time has definitely not been kind to that turd. Revolutions or Godfather 3? Both, actually. I mean, Matrix Revolutions, not too bad. They made some weird story choices and they made it about unusual things and it wasn't particularly thematically engaging. But overall, it's still, there's, there's stuff to enjoy. But Godfather Part 3, Sofia Coppola, she's not an actress. Um, mm. She is very talented in directing and writing. She has proven that. Um, and there are so many talented people involved in that movie, but... No, 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 no. Never no. seen the third one, actually. I just say, know it by reputation. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> do not bother watching it. Well, yeah, <laughs> I was, you know, I was thinking to myself tonight, like, uh, I don't know why you have these little conversations with yourself occasionally about what I think the greatest gangster film of all time is. Ooh. And I think I'm not a particular aficionado of gangster films. I don't particularly like them. I think a lot of the ones that people rave about are a bit crap, like Scarface. Everyone loves Scarface, the uh, the uh, Al Pacino film. Oh yeah, and I think it's a bit. I think it's a bit crap, personally. I mean, it's quotable, but I've always thought it was just a. I never, I never particularly enjoyed it that much. So, um, but anyway, so I'm not the best qualified person to answer what the best gangster film of all time is. But I was thinking Goodfellas. You gotta go Goodfellas, Ooh. and that will be. The, I think that's the debate, right? Is that it's Goodfellas yeah. or it's um or it's The Godfather. Yeah, or part two, one of those, a Godfather film, and I get yeah. I think as good as the Godfather, Godfather is, I always enjoy Goodfellas more. Goodfellas is just that little bit more kind of just enjoyable in its own right. I think because there is kind of that tongue in cheek, um, humor element to it, even though it is very violent and it's a very violent story, there's still that element of enjoyment to it. Whereas the Godfather, it's like, it's so slow and meticulous and so well thought out, but it's, it's like listening to um, Stephen Fry read a history of book to you where, you know, he's got a great, interesting voice to, to, to listen to for all those hours and it is an interesting medium that, that he's discussing but at the same time it's nice to have a little bit of brevity in there from time to time there's a bit of lightness to Goodfellas it wasn't and Godfather takes itself very very seriously yeah yeah um, but anyway that was just a weird little thought I had in my mind and I'm, I guess so I never loved the Godfather as much as everybody else did Mm. while acknowledging they are wonderful films. So I've never been particularly tempted to go out and run out and watch the third one, which everyone who loves the first two says mm. is average. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, speaking of movies that take themselves very seriously, I think we should jump straight into this week's chain movie, which is the 1998 Hugo Weaving starring independent Aussie movie, The Interview. Yes. Now, this was um, the last of my three 
uh, chains, and I'm handing the ball over to my lovely co-host, and we'll be interested to see where he takes us next. But I don't think I've – I can't remember if I've made you watch this film before or not. Is this the first time you've seen it? It is the first time that I have watched it. And um, I watched a, a little clip of it before I watched the movie, and I was very, very interested by it, very intrigued. Um, not the movie that I thought it was going to be. Well, tell me what you think about it, because this is probably about – I used to own this on DVD. Hmm. I've seen this many, many, many times, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about it. So this is the the look, the feel, the audio, the production, and everything about this movie it's very much of a time there was a there was a little run of movies there that um kind of really brought australian independent cinema big elsewhere in the world like uh, but when this was released i was still very much back in the uk um but even um this and romper stomper and chopper um as well as um uh, the castle and um, Bad Boy Bobby. There was like a. I think there was a, it was a, it was another thread there as well. But you're right. There's that's one thread of Australian independent film. The other thread was the uh, 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 what do we call it? It's completely just uh, the the strictly boring Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, Stephen Elliott sort of thread, which was um uh you know that was sort of mar- far more quirky Australia. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, definitely. Uh, what, whatever the, 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 the I, I can't believe I can't remember the name of it, but the, the drag queens, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these are the, the other thread of a story, you're right, but your one thread was this very dark, gritty sort of, yeah, very uh, much taking itself seriously. The um, the way that you the the interview opens up, it's um. I imagine that if they were to do a remake of this movie, it would be. So like um like a uh, director's wet dream for someone like um like one of those really gritty independent directors that wants to to tell something compelling because there's there's a lot going on in this movie and for those who don't know the interview follows the arrest and interview and uh, developments through that interview of Hugo Weaving's character in relation to what starts off, it seems to be just about a stolen car, but you very quickly and just from the way that the police officers are interviewing him and the sequences outside of the interview room, you very much get the idea, no, this isn't just about a a stolen car. There's more to it. And the story slowly but surely drip feeds you little bits, little morsels of information and the um sort of like the character that Hugo Weaving plays he um goes from you know the first time you meet him is asleep in a in an armchair in this kind of very rough and tumble looking little little I think, hole I think the british might call it a bed sit yeah basically yeah it's it's like a one bedroom all encompassing room that's living room bedroom kitchen everything just there and it's not very big it's not not attractive it's not nice looking he looks tired hugo weaving has got a very unique facial structure anyway um and it's funny seeing him with like the the longer floppy hair compared to you know last week's agent smith where it's so prim and perfectly shaved and tidied and everything um you the way that the police 
kind of raid his place and slap him about and treat him, you do instantly kind of feel like, what, what, what? This guy, yeah, maybe he is a bit weird, but he, I think he's innocent. And the story just progresses and the character work on um, Hugo Weaving's side, on um, the lead sergeant's side, every every actor involved is really great and it's eked out so well. And it layers on this interesting notion of how far is too far to go when you know someone is guilty um which is always like one of those things that even in um insomnia the and particularly referenced in the, the chris nolan version of it where al pacino's character is under investigation by internal affairs because he planted evidence and he's saying he did it because he knew that this guy was guilty and he wanted to guarantee that this guy was put away and it's like okay what's what's the greater the greater good here and this this movie this movie plays with that idea very very well but it also plays um almost coming into a little bit of the usual suspects kind of side where you know that's one of possibly the most famous interview of a bad guy movies i guess and the the twists and turns of that dynamic between the interviewer and the interviewee this does it in a far more dramatic way that isn't kind of um seeding itself into we're going to keep on cutting back to these cool little action sequences and stuff like that there's no twist well there's a, there's a twist there's kind of a twist i guess but like it's not as it's potentially not as hyper stylized as something like the usual yeah suspects. yeah definitely. this this is definitely um cutting it closer to the reality bone versus the hollywoodized ideology uh, people long-term listeners will know i'm a i'm a i'm a fan of um someone says wait what are you drinking Oh, uh, Guinness. Guinness. Yes. Drink of champions. It's a meal <laughs> in a glass. So we're open to sponsorship from Guinness. I'm I'm happy to take several cakes. Please. Um, <laughs> so I was going to say, I, people, regular um, listeners will know I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of dialogue-driven films, hence my Tarantino fanboy hat, family mm-hmm. on. Um, but I love nothing more than a film can keep me utterly riveted simply through the act of two people sitting in a room talking. Yes. So I think of a film like Locke starring um, oh, yeah. Tom Hardy, which Tom is, Hardy, is, yeah. is a massively underrated one of his films. If you haven't seen Locke, go out and get it. It's Tom yeah. Hardy in a car talking on the phone for two hours, and it's utterly compelling. Mm. Um, so this isn't quite that constrained. We've got a few different locations here. But essentially the meat of it is uh, a duel of, my, of wits between – uh, Hugo Weaving's um, character, Mr. Fish, Eddie Fisher, and mm. um, St- Detective Steele, played by Tony Martin, mm. um, and and he's to a lesser degree he's he's offsider, um, and just and you know what I enjoy about this, and I enjoy like seeing a wonderful actor doing some of their best work, and I think this is some of Hugo's mm. best work. Um, in that he uh, he starts out as you sort of say they raid his apartment or for one of the better terms bedsit his hovel at the start of a, a film and he's yeah. an utterly pathetic character yeah completely pathetic he's crying he's wet himself he's apologising he's terrified yeah seemingly by the end of a film but the final shot of his film which is apparently there is an alternate ending you can get in some places but the final mm-hmm. ending of the standard version of a film is I won't reveal what happens but 
you see he has come 180 degrees. He has gone on a journey. The, mm. the character, the Mr. Fisher we see at the end of the story couldn't is miles away from the one he started on. And yep. you were on board for the whole ride, and you knew exactly how he got there. Um, and I, that's, what, that's what I always felt was so brilliant mm. about this film was just Hugo Weaving at his absolute best. And Tony Martin, um, the Detective Steele, who um, for most Australians, I imagine, I always think of him um, as he's probably his best known role was um, as a, a reverend on a soap opera on Channel 10 <laughs> in the 90s called E Street. I don't know if that one ever made its way over the uh, over to the UK because they do love um, they do love Australian um, Australian dramas. Yeah, I don't think that one came over. But, he was also uh, on Heartbreak High, so he was on TV guy, right? That would be where I know him from, Heartbreak High. <laughs> um, so you know, it, it, to see him, and when I watch this, every time I think to myself is, why didn't he have it? Well, hasn't he had? He's still alive. Why hasn't he had a bigger film career? Um, because that, I, I don't know what the sequence of events was, but this was made about a year before Hugo Weaving really became a huge star, which obviously he was in The Matrix, then he was yeah. in Lord of Rings. He was in fucking Transformers. He was in Marvel. Um, yeah. He's in everything. He's, he's, he's a big star. I mean, I think Tony Martin kept up with him step for step in, in the uh, in the acting stakes here. I mean, I thought mm-hmm. I, I had known a few police people in my time, but I think he channeled. He absolutely channeled what I would expect a hard-bitten, no-nonsense police detective to actually be like. Um, and unfortunately for him, I mean, I don't know what actually happened, but he's he's never really done a whole lot of, of cinema. Um, uh, one, thing, one thing that um, did kind of distract me a little bit with his performance was just his accent is really strong, mm-hmm. very, very rich, and, uh, you know, he, he talks through his teeth and through his nose a lot. So I wonder if that's just the way that he talks and he's not been able to kind of shed that like so many other Australian actors have. It's true, yeah. It's, I mean, even in the Australian cinema, has, we haven't seen a whole lot of him doing big Australian cinema either, which where, yeah. where the accent will be less of a problem. But um, maybe you're right, maybe it's the accent. Maybe he didn't want to go work overseas. No. Um, you're right, Hugo, he's, um, we talked last week about his weird mid-Atlantic accent that he did for um, for Agent Smith, and he's he's got a wonderful voice as well as a very unusual looking face. Yeah. Um, and he's very talented. Um, one thing that always stood, stood out to me about this film is the look. You, you described it as kind of in that oeuvre of bad boy Barbie and, and, and Chopper and, and mm. Stomper. it is gritty, but this yeah. is a slightly more stylized view of a world than something like Chopper or, or, or your Robber Stomper, which goes for pure realism. Oh, yeah, yeah. But this one actually kind of has a very sort of film noir type vibe to me. What do you think? I absolutely agree with that. The The camera shots, um, the the fact that you keep on getting these shots of the video camera behind the hidden wall and things like that. There's always like this second or third layer of story going on. That's so, so film noir-ish. And it's, um, it's almost like, a, like an unusual um, mystery the whole the whole thing it's it's not just a detective story it's not a film noir it is a mystery novel that you just witness these characters slowly but surely interweaving or coming coming together and and separating at unusual po- points and things it's 
the whoever um, I'm going to look it up now because I want to see who the um, DOP was because um, it did a really really good job. Especially none of the sets look like oh they they invested a lot of money in this and the the costuming is so simple but very effective and it, it draws on the period that they're talking about. Um, but it all feeds into giving it the the production a cohesive feel. Uh, Simon Duggan is uh, the guy who did it, and he was a uh, he's gone on to d- do some big stuff. Like um, he was the cinematographer on The Great Gatsby, on Hacksaw Ridge, I Robot, Knowing, um, Warcraft Three Hundred, um, Killer Elite. He's done a lot of stuff. So um, a lot of his stuff's been made in and around Australia, so that's probably not surprising. But yeah, yeah it's uh, it's he's actually directed a film too, which was I. A short film, uh, directed by a guy named Craig Monaghan, who I have to say I've never heard of, um, and mm-hmm. disappointingly hasn't really done a whole lot. He's done two films since um, Peaches in 2004 and Healing in 2011, both mm-hmm. of which I think are Hugo Weaving films, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Peaches is, yes. And so is Healing, 2014, mm-hmm. sorry, Healing. I've never heard of either of these films, despite the fact they're obviously mm-hmm. Australian films. Uh, Higo's name's probably what got them made. Um, mm. But I think it's a bit of a shame because I, I think he showed some real skill here, the director. Um, and as you sort of said, the, the DOP's got something to answer for there. But I think the look of his film kind of has a v- vaguely 1940s feel. Yeah. And it has also, I mean, the story itself, as we sort of said, it's kind of a mystery. It's kind of a battle of wills. But at the same time, it kind of has a Kafka-esque element to it it's the start as well where you know the, the old lady in the ho- in the uh, boarding house or apartment building or what do you want to call it says they're taking mr fisher away oh, um, yeah. <laughs> um and you know sort of early on you kind of get this whole as you sort of said you cut you start out going this guy is pathetic you know yeah. um it, it's got to be a, a case of persecution by these uh thug cops but um, obviously that story, yeah, that sort of element changes over time as the story tends to develop. But Craig Monaghan also co-wrote the script um, along with a guy named Gordon Davey, who I never heard of as well, and this is the only thing he's ever written. That would be why. Mm. Um, but it's always disappointing to see people who do such good work, and I, I think that's maybe a, a symptom of the Australian film industry not being, not being what the American film market is. Um, that you, you probably have limited opportunities to do anything with, um, you know, with making your films, no matter how talented you are, unless you're prepared to go work overseas or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, I find it really interesting thinking about um, so many um, Australian independent movies are kind of cult classics, so many of them, and so many actors, especially ones um, that make it big in Hollywood, are kind of born and raised in Australia, and yet there still seems to be an odd kind of um, gap between the Australian cinema and and the rest of the world. It seems to be like they they grow them big and strong here, and that that talent, whether it's the actors, whether it's the production companies and the um, the DOPs and everything else, and so much stuff is filmed here. For some reason, it doesn't seem to just quite 
take off and hit those those highlights of like back in the 90s early 2000s uh film four in, in the uk they were pumping out some real quality pieces and people were kind of saying oh is it going to be able to become like like the next hollywood and it, it, they ended up reaching too far and they started making some some trash but um nowhere seems to have got that that showbiz glamour of hollywood the french like to believe that they have with the french cinema and in france yeah nothing beats french cinema but it's it's a rare bird that comes out of french cinema and takes over the world there's more chance of something from japan or china um, making it big compared to a french movie um, or a german movie a european movie i don't know if that's true i mean you know i can't i mean there are certainly french films i mean i i can't think of any for a while because there hasn't been any films I've seen for a while. But mm. um, I can't think of ever going to see a Chinese film made for China at the cinema in Australia. I can't think of ever getting a Japanese, other than other than manga or and especially, you know, um, you know, anime films at like the famous ones, which mm. is named your, your mate, um, Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the kind of films that get a release at, at, at art house cinemas here. Aside from that, you get the odd Japanese one here and there, but I would say it would at least be on a par. I would be you'd be as many French films as Japanese films at least here. But well, maybe maybe at the moment the 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 taste is more kind of Japanese and things, particularly after the success of things like Hero, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and that kind of thing. And Ip Man is a it, you know they they've done their fourth and final movie and it's that each one of them has been a global box office success um whereas the french kind of thing of you think about amelie and delicatessen and those kinds of movies they were sort of like the 80s 90s just cresting on to the early 2000s maybe the maybe the the kind of the flavors have changed somewhat um I think that we are going to start seeing a lot more of that Chinese cinema coming in because so many Hollywood movies and things are being made in China because of Chinese backers like Tencent. They are producing so many goddamn movies and games. And- I would say, though, that Chinese market, at least for now, as far as I can tell, make yeah. Mark film. And, and well, they should because they've got a billion plus people there to sell them to. True. Uh, make films for the Chinese market. Uh, I yeah. don't recall too many Chinese films. Like, if you want to go see a Chinese, an actual mainland Chinese film, I'm not talking about Hong Kong cinema, by the way. Mm. Actual mainland Chinese film. Yeah, you, there's a special cinema in the city you got to go to to do it. I think, um, and it's sort of you may play your your stand. That's probably where you go for most of your Hong Kong stuff. But it doesn't make the art house or, or the, the multiplex. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. But let's let's bring it back to the yeah, end because. Because we diverted enough, and we're a professional uh, podcasting service that uh, does not deviate from the plan. Um, I, yeah, I was really impressed with this. I was, I kept trying to work out throughout the whole thing what the situation, what's the situation, how what the story was, and I, it kept me guessing right up until the end. I wasn't sure if this was kind of a long con from. uh hugo weaving's character where he was trying to um oust the 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 lead detective uh the sergeant um for his repeatedly mentioned aggressive behavior and attitudes and uh bullying and inappropriate style i wondered if he was actually somehow connected to someone that had been 
um, previously victimized by this cop and this was his way of kind of uh, getting him ousted or something like that. I didn't know if it was literally a situation of, yeah, Hugo Weaving is the bad guy um, and it kept me guessing throughout the whole thing, which, as you have said, it's it's rare that a movie does that. So I was really impressed with that. And that was purely on the the competency of the storytelling. It was really, really well, There's nothing else to it, right? It's the story laid bare. Like if they mm. can't tell us if the actors can't convince you and the story can't conv- isn't interesting enough, there's no explosions. There's nope. no transforming robots in the background to do. <laughs> yeah, it's all the story and the acting. It's uh, it's when I that's why I think I enjoy these films. I get so impressed when someone does it properly. But it's Absolutely not agree. Absolutely agree. No, um, this is a this is a great movie. Really, really great movie. Um, I feel like we probably are going to be getting some form of remake of it because it can be done on a relatively cheap budget. You get um an actor that has had a lot of kind of social media faux pas or something like that, get them sort of like a, yeah, this is a real good opportunity to show off your acting chops, get them involved, maybe put um, the agenda swap into it as well, if you wanted to. And um, you could have a, a nice sleeper here. This, this like a remake of this bring coming up on one of the streaming services. I can fully believe that. Who would you, if you had a choice in a matter of, I gave you $15 million to do a remake, who would you go talk to first to play Hugo's character? Oof. Um, you know what? I would actually, the the first two cast, cast member voices that uh, popped into my mind, uh, for the Hugo Weaving part, though he hasn't proven to be particularly great at it and he's definitely got more of the comedy chops, I would be interested to see um, uh, Chris Hemsworth. I think that he's got that that likable look and personality that um, he he could, if he played it right, if he acted well enough, the the twists of the character throughout the interview would be great. Similarly, in the sergeant's perspective, Kate Blanchett. Mm. Kate would be amazing because Kate's Kate. Could- play a rock and be amazing yeah <laughs> i don't know about chris though. i don't know if he could pull off well i think what for me was so effective about this film was that like i said earlier you completely bought how pathetic he was at the start yeah he's such a pathetic character at the beginning you know disheveled you see the chair he was sleeping in yeah look at that it's worn and it's old and it's falling apart it's a piece of shit yeah i don't know that i could buy chris hemsworth with that body and that face ever looking that pathetic. That's true. But that okay, said, so I, I've doubted it before. I, uh, you know, if you're talking about disgraced actors and people who are looking to, to make a comeback. Yeah. Kevin Spacey hasn't been convicted of anything. Oh, wouldn't this be kind of potentially going a little close to um, his usual suspects? But what if he yeah. was playing the police sergeant? Ooh. Now that would be interesting. So, who would you have um, in the Hugo Weaving role? Well, that's a good question. I hadn't thought that far ahead. But um, oh, you know no, what? I, I, you know, the person, the first point that pops into mind is our show, the show's favorite actor, Sam Rockwell. That would be be phenomenal, of course. Is you know they they um, 
even though it was very disjointed conversation, they've worked together in the past in Moon. <laughs> that wasn't deliberate. I just thought of that. But I'm like, who yeah. I think of who can play disheveled and pathetic, but at the same time could turn it around to become quite menacing at the end. And I think I think Sam Rockwell could do that. Okay, here, here's my other choice. Kate Blanchett and Tilda Swinton. Yeah, yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Either of okay. them playing either of those roles. I must say, um, seeing it, I've seen this now many, many times. It's probably the first time in many years I've watched it. I mm. did notice a few cracks pop in this time, so I, I don't want it to be a complete love fest. There are some cracks mm. in the facade of this film, and I'd be interested to see your perspective as well. Mm. The first thing that sort of popped into my head I was watching it is that, uh, I guess this is a question rather than an observation. Do you think they they thought, do you think they were looking for a serial killer from the start, or was this an accidental? stumbling over something it was a little bit more than they thought they were getting i think that they were i think they were looking for a killer not necessarily a serial killer um and i think that they even until about 45 minutes into the movie i don't think that they were entirely sold on the idea that they got the right guy I've always kind of assumed, and maybe this is me being just not thinking hard enough about it, but I, I always took it the other way. I always felt that they did pick up Hugo for a stolen car and got more than they bargained for. Mm. But either way, I felt like this the, the raid at the start of a film was made no sense. Like, uh, he's a guy in a bed seat, like, and especially if you think he's a, being arrested about a stolen car. Yeah. You're not going to bust in with guns out, shouting at him and pointing your shotgun at his head um, for a stolen car. That's um, that's a little bit overkill. We've been joined by our uh, regular third co-host, Archimedes. Yep. Uh, just decided to step into the room and give us his thoughts. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, I always kind of think, well... Really, I mean, it seems like a lot of a lot of force, and and they you know for a stolen car, and then the way that they toss the room immediately afterwards, kind of just what are you exactly looking for? What do you yeah. expect? What are you like? With Tony Martin's turning the bed upside down and flipping through piles of paper, what exactly does he think he's going to find? He's going to go, aha! It was you know uh, Hugo weaving with the candlestick in the conservatory. Um, you know, like it's, I never quite are you looking at it going, what, what exactly are you looking to find by throwing things around like that? And, yeah. but they bagged everything up, like, and took it to the police station. It just didn't make a lot of sense as to what exactly they were doing with it. In the end, there is an important plot point that does sort of loop back around and, and, and make sense of why they did it. But, like, mm. from the logic of a story, it's really like, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. There's also, also a sequence partway through the film so slight spoilers here so um it's a 22 year old film i think we can get away with it um mm -hmm. where hugo sort of has a dream sequence where he sees all his victims and stuff like that yeah uh and i know he's actually kind of describing it but that didn't work for me yeah me neither i i don't think that they needed to show that and the the cgi of hugo kind of walking out of the burning building as well it just it very much showed the budget and as the years go on it shows the age of the movie as well um 
I don't I'd think agree it, with you, though. I don't think it needed to be there. Yeah, I think that it if it had just been kind of just on Hugo's face as he was just talking it through, Hugo is definitely strong enough to be able to command the screen for that long of a time talking about something like that um, and you not need those visual aids beyond the the acting that he delivers. It's It was unnecessary. I'm being a bit, bit hypercritical here because I'm with you. I think this is one of the finest Australian films mm. ever last 30 years. Mm. Uh, and it is available to rent on YouTube, I believe. Yes. Um, so it is in Australia at least. So I can't speak for foreign markets. Uh, I'm sorry. But if you do the search, do not get it mixed up with the Seth Rogen film that kind of pissed off the uh, North Korean government and got released for free. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 2098 Australian film, the, the interview, and I, I think it's well worth exploring if you mm. uh, are a fan of I mean, I don't know if Hugo Weaving has fans, but if you're like, you've seen Hugo and stuff before and you're like, I'd be curious to see some of his work in Australia. Yeah. Um, I can recommend this and I can recommend Proof from 1991, which we haven't reviewed, but uh, I think this is just um, – I think it's a shame, though, in a way that we've never had really, he's never really got a chance to stretch his wings and mm. show exactly what he's capable of in a Hollywood role. Yeah. Like, like a role, like a, he could play a Kaiser Soze in as usual suspects like that. Oh, uh, uh, but he's never had that chance. He's always behind makeup or a mask or, uh, yeah. you know, as, and that, you know, I'm sure his bank balance is okay with that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it'd be, it would have been nice, it would be, or it would still be nice because the guy's still alive. It'd be nice yeah. to see him one day have a role where he can really sink his teeth into. And, you know, um, here's one for Leftfield that just popped into my head. Mm. He, could he play Lex Luthor? That would definitely be interesting. He could do it for sure. Um, okay, so let, let's let's just uh, hypothetical this out then. If he was the Lex Luthor, who would you get to be the Superman to his Lex Luthor? Oh, it doesn't matter. Superman doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like Batman. Bat- Who's playing Batman matters very little. It's all about how interesting the villains are. Superman's <laughs> boring. Um, like, I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with Henry Cavill in the role. I think Henry Cavill's fine as Superman. He looks the part. You know, he's got a great physique. His head look. He's you know, he looks like a Superman, right? Uh, I'm still like. I mean, uh, I'm fine. I was fine with Brandon Routh. I know. Again, there's actually a Joe Blow video this week, a version, uh, an episode of an unpopular opinion. It's really but, nice to know that they listen to the show. <laughs> that they did an episode on on Superman Returns. Is the unpopular opinion this week? Is they're selling yeah. one of the better Superman films? Um, and and I I have said many times on my record, despite the fact that, um, you know, it's unpopular with a lot of people, I liked it. And I like Brandon Ralph as Superman because he kind of is Christopher Reeve and I liked that. Um, but essentially, yeah, if you can get the right villains in place, as long as, you know, your Superman is passable, it doesn't really matter what your super, who your Superman is. Mm. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, he's not quite as bad as Batman because Batman's under a mask a lot of the time, I guess. But, you know, Superman, meh, whatever. Yeah, get yourself an interesting villain. Christopher Reeve wasn't an amazing actor. They just think Gene Hackman was a great Lex Luthor. Oh, Christopher Reeve was a good actor. If you watch uh, Somewhere in Time when he plays against Jane Austen. Uh, not Jane Austen, um, Jane Seymour. I haven't. I've only seen that. And I think I saw him in The City of Lost Children. Um, mm. But anyway, I, I I think it'd be I think it'd be fun to see mm. him under a 
ball cap and, and, and really hamming it up. Well, I think I think that um, Hugo Weaving is definitely a contender for a potential Lex, uh, Lex Luthor. But the other one who is an obvious choice for Lex Luthor is Brian Cranston. Yeah, that could work. But you have to try and not. Be, you have to try and turn the comedy down about ten percent. Yeah, but uh, taking a sideways little thing that did remind me. Speaking of superheroes and supervillains, I think we should actually just touch a little bit on the passing of Chadwick Boseman. That was a shock. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone knew that he was. Um, I didn't know he was sick from cancer, and especially, you know, he'd been. Uh, suffering from it for four years so he did all of black panther all of the marvel stuff that he did as well as um uh, a number of his like a um, very important kind of uh black um biography movies i guess you'd call them uh during this period so may maybe he's had a, a surprisingly short career but uh he did a lot with the time that he had for sure and uh it's a it's a big big shame because he was a talented man, very talented. Very, yeah. I mean, he he really nailed uh, the role of Black Panther. Um, yeah, which, I mean, it's going to be his you know most memorable role. I mean, like you said yeah. that he was in um, Forty Two, which is the Jackie Robinson mm-hmm. movie, and I think he did a, a few other movies about the civil rights movement type thing. Yeah. probably before he really became a, a really big name. Mm. My goodness, he was in Gods of Egypt. I'll forgive him for that. Um, yeah, he was. And I think he was in uh, just uh, earlier this year. He was in a Spike Lee movie, um, yeah. And yeah, what a shock! I mean, because he was only forty-two. Yeah, and you sort of said like last year he was. I mean, I don't know when he actually shot his Endgame stuff, but he was in Endgame last year in mm. a smallish role. But goodness, it was um very sad. I mean, yeah, a talented dude. Um, and it goes to show that cancer can strike you anywhere. It doesn't yeah. matter how rich and famous you are. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a crash thought. But everyone's had it. What do I do with Black Panther from here? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I mean, um, one of the things that um, Shay was talking about was maybe this is an opportunity for them to kind of slightly course correct and get uh, Shiori as um, as the new Black Panther. And- I mean, she's, she's the uh, Black Panther in the comic books, I understand. Yeah, that. yeah, that's, that's my understanding. She was very popular and it would be very um, kind of – they, I, I feel like that's probably an easy-ish way of kind of continuing the legacy on of actually recognizing T'Challa's death, um, maybe even in canon, and just going, she has taken up the mantle and uh, continues on with it. Which, you know, she she was phenomenal in in Black Panther, and yeah, she to do. But yeah, and that would be in line with their kind of philosophy. They really do kind of want to make more female superhero films. Yeah. Because uh, I've been talking to people about this. I was talking to someone about this last weekend. People have always wanted female superhero films. They just want good ones. Yeah. They don't want fucking Electra and Catwoman. If you no. make shit films with female leads, of course you're going to go, well, no one saw it. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is the same thing with um, before Black Panther. People were like, oh, I don't want a black superhero. Be, sure, they do. They just want a good one. They don't, yes. want, they don't want steel. I saw steel. It wasn't good. Um, but, um, so I think that, that's the first place my head went. I know it's a crass thing to talk about only a week mm. after the man died, but like I said, I think everyone had the same thought. What do I do with that? Because I made all the monies. Yeah. The one. yeah. Uh, I had people sort of saying, can they retcon it and maybe have Michael B. Jordan step into the role? Um, I don't think that's going to work. But, I mean, the logical choice is to go Shuri. 
Um, And, I mean, it's a hell of a step up for the young lady. I mean, I forget the actress's name, but um, you're right, she was wonderful in... um, in, in the, the short amount of time she had in, in Black Panther, but and yeah. it's, yeah, it's canonical with the comic books as well. So yeah, absolutely. Um, with, so and it's Letitia Wright. Yes, Letitia. I think it's Letitia Wright. Um, and goodness, what a huge step up in, in role that would be for her. Uh, it'd be a ballsy decision by um, it'd be a ballsy decision by Marvel if they go that way. But um, yeah. Um, and I, I think they have to do something. Go, even though I'm sure the temptation would be there to potentially retire the character for a while. But I mean, well, I mean, they were already in pre-production for a sequel. So that's obviously going to be stopped because whatever pre-production they had, that was with the idea that Chadwick Boseman was going to be there. Unless um, Chadwick had been very open with Marvel and had been discussing it with them saying, Hey, it's getting worse. I've only got so much time. Um, reduce, reduce my time down. Make Black Panther two a a a changeover of the mantle movie kind of thing. Perhaps, who knows? Um, I the feel IMDb, like- the IMDb page has no cast listed at all at the moment, and says it's in yeah, it's in uh, it's announced rather than in pre production. Yeah. Yeah, so the rumors here do say that apparently there's a trivia item that says it's rumored Michael B. Jordan will return to play Killmonger for this movie, uh, and Craven the Hunter might be the bad guy. But if they're if they were lining up to have Michael B. Jordan come back, then that would be interesting. That would be tempting, I'm sure, for them to maybe have him step in. I think considering how successful he was in that role and the the movie on the whole, because, I mean, aside from Avengers Endgame, the Black Panther was, like, the most kind of Oscar, Oscar-worthy Oscar movie that Marvel have made thus far. So they want, they want that Oscar gold. They want, they want to be able to hang that on, on the Marvel brand. Um, and Michael B. Jordan has proven success as as a as a quality actor as well as an action character however kind of going off topic of Chadwick Boseman if they were to bring back another fucking villain again my god that that basically means that no death is sacred in the MCU because it happens so fucking often loki has died innumerable times every bloody character has died the only character that at the moment, is definitely dead, is Black Widow. And Thanos. Yeah, he'll probably be back. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that the comic books? So it doesn't happen in comic books all the time anyway. Exactly, but, you know, if, you know, if, if they're gonna, if they're gonna kill someone, make it, you know, don't make it so obvious. So that, that was my biggest problem with, um, with part one of uh, the Infinity War duology, I guess, is, like, really? They're going to kill off all of their new superhero characters? No, none of those ha- had emotional value to me. Um, but, you know, it still made, still didn't make it a terrible movie. It still didn't make Endgame any more rewarding when you see them all come back, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if, if, if there's going to be a death, make it poignant, because usually in Marvel and DC... When a hero or a villain dies, it's a poignant moment. Let it be a poignant moment. That's all I say. If, if a character's going to die, don't bring them back in the next goddamn movie. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, it's just tempting when you have someone who's so successful as 
That's true. Michael B. Jordan was to go, well, it seems a waste, I mean, to have thrown him away like that um, when yeah. he could have had a, an arc. That's why, I mean, that's, that's, that's why I'm quite, um, you know, if you go back to Superman films, like Lex Luthor, Superman didn't kill Lex Luthor at the end of Superman 1 yeah. or in Superman 2. He just hauled him off to jail. And, I mean, I know when I was young, I used to love Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. I thought he was wonderful. And <laughs> I mean, you could have an arc of stories about, you know, your superhero and their supervillain facing off. He didn't need a different villain every film. Yeah. It seems to be an idea that's kind of gone out of, out of fashion now. Yeah. Right? You've got to kill the villain at the end of a film and, and then you'll have the next one. And the next, you know, well, can't we have like, I mean, that was what was interesting about the, the last two Avengers films. We had a short arc or you know, longer, if you could consider it, Thanos kind of had been fucking mm. around for a while, but we had the one villain in two separate films. And that gave us a lot more space to hear the story about them. But yeah. Um, but to come back to the original point, very sad. Mm. He passed away. And one year, one year older than me, um, and really, uh, he'll he'll be missed. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to enjoy his shit. Yeah, I mean, he was he was a quality actor, and it really sh- shows his the effect that he had on uh, on the community in Hollywood and the fans worldwide. When you know that that day, almost straight away, every single thing on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook was about Chadwick Boseman, and it was hundreds of different stories about how he helped people and how he did all these things and people coming forwards with these wonderful stories about him as a person and um, um, particularly how he was trying to help make it better for other people coming up after him. And I think that's that's a real testament to a truly genuine, honest, great quality character of a man. So... I'd like to think if I was a, if I were, you know, I'd like to be that kind of guy. If you know, if I'd made it, you know, and was mm. you know, making twenty million dollars a picture, man. I think mm. it was talk about like buying out cinemas, like paying for cinemas, yeah, to go uh, in disadvantaged neighborhoods to go and see his films. Exactly. Yeah, that's cool shit, right? It's cool. Yeah. Exactly. Now, um, back on back on track. Obviously, the interview was the last of Travis's three movies to get him to get me to watch the interview and uh that was a delight thank you very much now it is my turn for three movies so we i have got an end location in mind within three movies i managed to do it um we are for following paul sonkila who played detective inspector jackson in the movie um he was in gallipoli so quite a, a classic um, Indeed, a very fine Australian film. Yeah, um, a classic Peter Weir movie with a very young Mel Gibson, and um, I think we've watched it in the past already. But um, we we do what we must to get where we need to be. Any <laughs> film again? This is um, this is an Australian classic. This is Peter Weir, mm-hmm. um, written by. If we had a poet laureate, it would probably be David Williamson. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, so I am I'm happy to go back to this movie because it is it is a quality quality movie. Um and they keep on coming back to the the story of Gallipoli. I think it was last year or the year before, um one of the big networks in Australia made a uh I think a, f- a four-part mini series all about Gallipoli, but it was far more of a kind of a romantic thing from the look of the trailers. 
uh, whereas this is definitely more of a drama focused on the ravages of war. This is this is this is almost the founding myth of Australia. I mean, if we mm. have any, if we have our our Russian bots uh, who are listening, we've got uh, Canadian bots at the moment. Canadian actually. bots. So yeah. our, our bot friends who are listening, you, you can't. I mean, I've said before, you cannot understand Australia without understanding what happened at Gallipoli. So it's a century. This is like the fucking American Revolution for Yanks. This is like Gallipoli <laughs> is for Australians. It's such an important part of the Australian story, and and I think. For me, this is the best film I've seen made about it. And you, Peter Weir, highly mm. competent director, the kind of guy you know who worked in Hollywood. And absolutely, and you say, you, it's interesting to see young Mel Gibson um, uh, on his way up. Um, yeah, uh, I, and I can't tell you how many times. And I think I think I said it at the time when 1917 came out. This year, 1917, the yeah. uh, the the war, the, the one shot World War One film. Mm. I'm like, well, I liked that film better when it was called Gallipoli. <laughs> and nineteen seventeen was fine, but it did kind of rip off Calibri a little bit for me. No, that's fair. That's fair. There we go. That's something exciting for this week. So that is, that is um that is next week's uh movie chain session. And uh then um see you'll be pleased to know that we have got nothing but quality for the next three movies. We so are gonna have to punish well, ourselves after that though, right? We we are. And um I actually, if you want me to choose the follow-up punishment movie, I already know where we could go, and okay. it leads to many, many places. <laughs> well, we'll wait and see where that takes us. Like, <laughs> I expect that's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Travis, I want you to take me to Lovecraft Country, please. Tell me about it. So, Lovecraft Country is a new series which has uh, premiered in the last few weeks mm-hmm. in Australia on Foxtel. Or binge if you have that net, that uh, app. I believe it's an HBO uh, production. So if you're in the states, you're probably watching it on HBO. If you've got that on cable or HBO Max for streaming. Um, and the synopsis says a young African American travels across the US in the 1950s in search of his missing father. Don't think that really does it justice. Um, now, are you familiar with the writings of H.P. Lovecraft? I haven't read any of them, but I do know a fair amount. Obviously, um, the most uh, most famous of H.P. Lovecraft's characters, Cthulhu. Cthulhu. So H.P. Lovecraft, I guess you'd classify him as a horror writer. I actually don't know anything about his work at all. I've never read any of it. I assume he wrote in the early 20th century or something like that. Um, but you're right. Cthulhu has kind of become a very famous character in, in its own right. Despite the fact I can't recall it ever being a film or anything like that. Um, being made based on the character Cthulhu. So anyway, the writings of H.P. Lovecraft are the Lovecraft part of Lovecraft Country. So mm. yes, part of the story is about the journey of Atticus Freeman, played by Jonathan Majors, his journey across the US in the 1950s to try and find his father who has disappeared. Um, but the the characters, or I guess the aesthetic, of H.P. Lovecraft's characters do play into the mix as well. Okay. So we start out with um with uh, the our, our central character of Atticus um on a bus in the south uh, next to uh, another African American woman talking about um his experiences as a soldier. Uh, then the bus breaks down and that, a truck turns up to take all the passengers through to the next town. But you can just see the look on his face when he sees the truck turn up as. Uh, Atticus turns around, goes to the luggage compartment of the bus, 
takes his bag and just starts walking. It's just like, I know I'm not getting on that truck. Mm. Up next to the white folk. Mm. And then so the the char- segregation is almost the character in this film of itself. It's almost it's a central, you know, running theme throughout the the, the show. Mm. Uh, I just to take a step back. If the TV show actually before him being on the bus opens with him imagining the world of H.P. Lovecraft with like the Walkers from H.G. Wells, Cthulhu and ufos and crazy shit going on you're like what the fuck is going on but i think that's actually a, a vision into into atticus's wonderful imagination right. uh, so he is a, a reader uh, and again the, the books he reads sort of tend to, to come up quite a bit in the show um the first episode is absolutely fucking brilliant like mm-hmm. it is it is tense it is scary it is violent and gruesome and so much fun at parts, which is actually kind of a very strange mix for a show. It has a very heavy theme of segregation and mm. white terrorism of, of African-American people. Yeah. There can actually be some amusement in there and enjoyment as well. Um, so uh, he he's on his bus. He's just got out of the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, he journeys his way back to Chicago where he meets up and stays with his uncle, played by... Um, his name he's uh courtney b vance who was in uh, law and order <laughs> he played a lawyer in law and order for many years okay That's where I remember him from um and he uh decided from when he gets there because he, he's gone back to chicago because he got a letter from his father saying i need you to come join me i've discovered something about our past and you've got some sort of secret his- family history i need to tell you about but when he gets there his father's gone so um, Courtney Vance, actually one of his uh, jobs is to write guides for African-American travellers, mm-hmm. a little bit like the Green Book in, in, in Green Book, if you ever saw that one with um, uh, Mahash Ali, Ali and... Um, Viggo Mortensen. Viggo Mortensen. Mm-hmm. So but he decides, well, apparently they discover where he might, figure out where he might be up in Massachusetts. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to go and drive up there and see if we can find him. And he sort of combines it as an opportunity to, to take some notes for his book about, you know, how safe travels for the African-American person. And mm. a lot of them comes there, his um, cousin, I think, Letitia Lewis. Um, and the first episode, as I said, is a riot. In, you know, they once they leave Chicago, you can sort of feel them when they're out in the country, you know, the uh, complete sense of menace. Mm. When every town they go to, they chase, you know, they try to have um, something to eat in a cafe and end up being chased out of town by rednecks shooting at them from the back of a pickup truck. They stopped in a, a forest to try and see if they can spot, figure out where his, his father might have gone, only to be completely terrorised by a police officer who's basically threatened them. But if they don't get out of town by sundown, the county by sundown, mm. they'll be hung, uh, given they've got seven minutes until sundown. That's quite a tense moment. Um, so I'm not going to spoil it from there because that actually sets off, that particular sequence sets off, the, an incredible showdown, an incredibly tense scene, which really takes a show off in a very left-wing sort of direction. In the one hand, you're thinking, is this is going to be a straight drama about segregation in the 50s and this guy's journey to sort of find his father and survive, you know, being an African-American man in, an, in a hostile country. Yeah, that's part of a story. But, my goodness, it goes some places you do not expect after that. And that's, I'm not, I mean, maybe I'm giving a little bit too much away, but that's where the Lovecraft part comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you're like, I remember it sort of took a breath after it was a 70 minute pilot. You're like, 
wow, I don't think I've been that impressed by a first episode of a show for a very, 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 very long time. I was like, I cannot, when I was so excited that there was a second episode sitting mm. there waiting for me to consume. Mm. And that's where the trouble started. Because mm. this has got one hell of a, a, a legacy of creators, you know, um, Jordan Peele, J.J. Abrams, and uh, uh, Micah Green, uh, Misha Green, sorry, who uh, did a uh, really cool but short-lived and kind of went too far, uh, Helix, which is a great great sci-fi series. But, um, yeah, this this has got a bit of a... Also, Sons of Anarchy and Heroes in there as well for Misha Green. So that's a... You're oh, right. Yeah. They've got quite a bit of heritage there. Uh, mm. Unfortunately, though, Jordan Peele also was responsible for the reboot of Twilight Zone that came out, I think, last year. Mm. And that was pretty bad. Mm. Um, you, so, you watched, watched quite a bit of that, didn't you? I like the idea of a Twilight Zone. It used to be one of my favorite mm. shows when I was a kid. And I was excited that they were going to do it again. And that's what we, it wasn't, wasn't up to scrap, wasn't up to snuff. The, unfortunately, the second episode of Lovecraft Country, we went from one of the best episodes of TV I've seen in a very long time to to one of the worst. The, the second episode is a complete and utter mess. Um, so our the main sort of the idea of our 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 sort of our group of heroes sort of being on a a, a road trip or a journey, and it goes from being kind of a road film to mm. being stuck in one spot. And I won't sort of say why, but Stuck in this one, this mansion with a bunch of people who are doing something that's very difficult to understand. There's magic involved, okay? So spoilers, there's magic involved. And, you know, uh, so to take a step back, these people, this is hinted at in the first episode. Mm. Stuff that happens, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And you're like, that's interesting. And I was sort of expecting that payoff to be spent, to sort of draw that payout off of a few episodes of like, what is going on with these people when these unexplained things happen? Mm. They completely just they smash us in the face of it in the second episode, and it's it's all over the shop, and it's incredibly frustrating because I'm watching, and I had a lot of trouble following what the fuck was supposed to be going on, what people's motivations were, why they were doing things, you know, how things were happening. You know, who this person, all random people with sort of characters would appear and you'd be like, what the fuck is going on? And yeah, it was, ugh, I was extraordinarily disappointed in episode two of Lovecraft Country. Um, and if you actually have a look at the reviews of people uh, who have watched the episodes, two episodes, it's three out now. Um, I'm a, The first episode is got an 8.5. Mm. Drops to a 7.2. And I am astounded at how generous that is because it is a mess. A mess. Um, I'm going to go back for episode three because yep. the first, because of the first one, because of the first one was so good, I, I'm going to I'm going to give it one more chance. But if it's anything like, if they don't clean up a lot of the mess that they made in the second episode, then uh, I'm going to not be. I'm going to be unhappy. Mm. Sternly worded letter, um, um, but yeah, I mean, this is kind of Jordan Peele's jambo. I mean, I'm, um, you know, he comes up with a cool idea. Let's reboot the Twilight Zone, and let's come up with a cool idea for a story. And I, I don't know what to do with it though. Yeah, uh, which is also for the record, fucking JJ Abrams' mo. True. Wouldn't so it be cool true. to a plane crash on a mystery island? Cool. 
and there's all sorts of mysterious shit happening on the island. Cool. Cool. What happens next? Next. Uh... I, <laughs> I have something else to do at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a man who can't end the story. Is JJ Abrams and that? Yeah. Um, it's it was so uh, we will see how we go for one more. But I'm just telling people, um, you know, you're going to see episode one. You're going set expectations to high. Mm-hmm. Do try to temper that if you can, because my goodness, the second episode was such a disappointment. Mm, okay. Incidentally, if you are interested in um, arguably the best non-Lovecraftian movie that is very much a love letter to Lovecraft, um, In the Mouth of Madness with Sam Neill. I am familiar with it. I've never seen it there. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's one of my faves. It's not a fantastic movie. But oh, it's it's so of its time. It's wonderful. Sam Neill is great, and um, uh, fuck, what's it? What, what what's the fucking guy's name? Um, he played Lionel Luther in Smallville. Um, he's he's a, a, a face that you look at. He's got oh, I know him. Um, there's 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 actually a few of those in it. Jürgen Prochnow, huh? Jürgen Prochnow. No, no, no. Um, I, no I, I've never watched an episode of Smallville in my life. I have taste. Unbelievable. <laughs> he was also in Gremlins 2, I think it was. I'm also not a 15-year-old girl. Um, but, uh, <laughs> who does he, he play in, in his book? John his, Glover. That's his name. Okay. John Glover. Yeah, and he was uh, he was the other exec that was kind of chasing after Bill Murray's character in Scrooge. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen Scrooge, but yeah, okay. Don't yeah. recognize him. Well, you, you Maybe, I'm looking at, looking at I'm looking at one picture though, right? Like he's probably a lot older than he was back then. Yeah, but um, yeah, that's that's kind of the closest that because the, the one of the dream projects that Guillermo del Toro wants is at the Mountains of Madness, which is the Lovecraft novel, and um. He's kind I wonder of, why none of it's actually ever been adapted. I think part of it is that um, there's some some issues similar to some of the other estates of famous writers. They're very particular about who's going to take control of it. And um, there was a period where um, Guillermo was going to make in the mountains of mad uh, at the mountains of madness, but then. There was a movie that came out, and I can't remember what one it was now that he said, but it came out and Guillermo went, well, there's no point in making In the Mountains of Madness. So I get I that think, part of it. I have the indication that nothing of Lovecraft has been adapted before. You mm. look him up, there are 216 credits of him as the writer. Wow. Uh, yet I can't – apparently he wrote Reanimator. I, I, that's the only one I've actually heard of. Wow. Uh, but um, I've already found the writer's credit of his that I want to see, mm. and it's only he's only got a credit of inspired by the works of. But the film is 2014's Call Girl of Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> See if I can find that one. Um, anyway, so that's Lovecraft Country. Look, it looks good. The acting's great uh, for the most part. Um, and as I said, the, the first episode had some amazing moments of absolute sheer tension. And 
were, were was reminiscent of the kind of thing you would. It did kind of feel like in parts a little bit like Get Out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it had that kind of genius in there, uh, but geez, they took a bad that backward step in the second episode. It seems to be that there's there seems to be a certain kind of narrative that starts really well, and then they go, okay, we're gonna strand you in this one location for a while, and it always seems to suffer. And you said it from episode one to episode two of Lovecraft Country. I'm thinking season one to I think it was season two of The Walking Dead, where they were at the farm for most of it, and everyone mm-hmm. got really frustrated. Um, it's It seems to be like, sort of like okay, know, know the story you're telling. You, you, you don't think of, like, the original Terminator. That's a chase movie. And if they suddenly sit down and they do nothing for a while, that's when the pace comes off. And the only time they really did that is to have a moment where they could have a sex scene just so that they could create the savior for the future. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, it's, uh, I'm all good. It's a bit like when you go see a band, right? If you go see a band do a gig. Remember when bands used to play gigs? Um, yeah, I remember Nickelback quite clearly. Yeah. If you're Nickelback, you're probably not going to start with, this is how you remind me, right? Your best, most famous song. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know any of our other songs. You know, you're probably going to start with something people know. Mm. So, for example, I remember I saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers in 2016 in Manchester, mm. and they started out with um, Don't Stop, which is a well-known song of mm, Californication or one of the others that came out after that. I can't remember. But mm. it's a good song. It's well-known, and the people were jumping up and down and bopping, and definitely a great way to start the show. The next yeah. five songs were all off their new album, which nobody had because – Nobody listens to their albums anymore because they're terrible. Uh, and you're like, I don't want to hear shit off your new record. Okay, drop one or two in. You've got an incredible back catalogue of amazing music. Why am I listening to shit off your new record? I don't want it. So we actually yeah. left. Um, but that's, that's that's exactly what Craft Country's done. It's given yeah. us a beloved classic hit to open the gig and then drop five, rec- five songs off their shit-ass new album. Yeah. Um, and it's, and then you can pull it back though when you've got a back catalogue like the Chili Peppers do. Yeah. I don't know that Lovecraft does have that back catalogue, but we'll see. Hmm. It'd be interesting to see because I am very curious about it. I do love a lot of the ideas that come from um, Lovecraft's stuff. Um, and also, the, I remember, there is a, there's a, um, a John Carter of Mars reference. <laughs> awesome. Always going to be happy about that. Now, the movie that I want to talk about has got very little going for it, unfortunately, um, and that is the Vin Diesel vehicle Bloodshot. Uh, it didn't look good. Mm-hmm. This is um, a bit of a hot mess, and there's only really two reasons why I decided to go and watch it, because I am a fan of Guy Pierce, and because I'm a fan of Toby Kebbell, who has a small cameo in this movie. This is an adaptation of a graphic novel um, about Ray Garrison, a slain soldier who is reanimated with superpowers. But he's not actually reanimated with superpowers. He's just given basically cybernetics and not actual superpowers. He's just a very powerful machine. So eh, kind of flirting with an odd thing here. I remember the early kind of uh, kind of 
during production buzz of this movie was like, oh, this is going to be a gritty, um, more adult-orientated superhero-style movie. And it's really not. It's dumb, and it is not particularly entertaining dumb either. Um, It's directed by Dave Wilson, who has primarily only really done um, sort of like visual effects stuff. Um, The only other thing that he did was he did direct an episode of Love, Death, and Robots. Um, And it was uh, Sonny's Edge, which is the first episode, apparently. Which, yeah, it was pretty good. Um, But I think the primary blame for this movie lies with the writer who is Jeff Wadlow. Jeff Wadlow, who um, was once uh, cited by Quentin Tarantino as um, being one of 2013's best films for Kick-Ass 2, which is not a good film. Um, He also has... We wrote Fantasy Island. I heard that was really bad. Yeah, that was not good. Um, He did write an episode of The Strain, but that had very up and down. He... Um, wrote True Memoirs of an International Assassin, and when you have Kevin James involved, of course you're talking about quality. <coughs> mm-hmm. um, he's done a few odds and sods of bits throughout his cr- career, but nothing in particularly stands out to me, and none of this movie it has any point to it. There's no heart to it. There's no, the action sequences are shoddy. The VFX, mildly okay. None of the characters are given any kind of time or desire to know more. You do not feel like, yeah, I want to know more about that character or that character. It's stereotypes upon stereotypes, butting heads of testosterone bullshit. And it's, it's trash. And they were, very lucky that the quarantine hit because it came out into cinemas, I believe did not do well, but this was right on the cusp of the world locking down and it's gone to like streaming services and things like that, where it'll have a general success, I think because it's a dumb action movie and those are big money on streaming services, really. And it's got a big name in it. You're going to go, Oh, if this is the same thing we've talked about many times, it's like in the old days when you go to the cinema, People mm. oftentimes wouldn't make up a decision about what they're going to see till they get there. And yeah. the old thing we say, like, you go there with your date, there's a 90-minute Vin Diesel film or a two-and-a-half-hour sequel to something made 30 years ago, the yeah. Blade Runner 2049. You're mm. going to see the Vin Diesel film. Who are you kidding? Uh, so yeah. I think the same thing play in, in streaming, right? You, you don't turn the streaming service on going, I'm going to watch Blah. You yeah. go, I'm going to try and watch. Oh, there's a new Vin Diesel film out. Let's watch that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. But um, it's also overlong. It's an hour and 49 minutes, and you feel those minutes. Ooh, ooh, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of good intentions, I think, going into this movie. Like, there's some possibly interesting ideas, but none of the production team have the quality, um, seem to have the quality to actually pull it together into a cohesive, interesting action sequence or concept, let alone a full movie. Um, it's a real shame to see Guy Pearce in here, frankly, because he is a far better actor than this movie um, requires. And he seems to be making interesting, unusual choices 
in his career. Like the last movie of particular note that um, he was in. Iron Man 3. Well, I I liked him in that for sure. He also played Peter Wayland in Alien Covenant. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah. What was Domino? It's not, I assume that's, that's not the uh, Kira Knightley film. No, it's not. No. Um, he's been doing uh, Jack Irish stuff for a while. That's Rover Australian, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, uh, Ro- I think Rover is apparently good. He's based in Australia, though, right? Like, and my, I, I, we have a friend who used to work, do recording for him. He's, he's a musician as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, he has a home studio here in Melbourne and stuff. So I feel like, I mean, Guy doesn't necessarily. I have a feeling he doesn't work overseas a whole lot. Mm, maybe. I'm probably a little bit picky about what he does. So I mean that the fact he's in Bloodshot probably doesn't stand after the fact. Yeah, he's being a bit picky. But you know what? Um, sometimes you just want to get paid. Yeah, but there's 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 moments in this movie that are actually interesting. And if they'd kind of stuck with that style, like the the cameo that they have of Toby Kebbell's character, it has it's ridiculous the whole thing it is absurd and they they even bring reference to it in the movie because spoilers they fuck with vin diesel's memory and implant things into it and there's someone who is literally making up this shit and but the style and the way that they film it's like okay if you'd gone with that that style for the whole movie that would have been at least entertaining but they don't, and it's like, oh, really? They're even going to chastise that style in their own movie and replace it with something far more boring? Come on. Know your product. It's it's such a shame. And, you know, this is, um, this is a typical Vin Diesel role as well. He's a tough guy with no brains. And Vin <clears throat> Diesel is actually smart, but he seems to relish playing these dumb strong guys that have real heart and uh, absolutely devoted to his wife or his loved one and will do anything to get back to her. Like, yeah, we've seen that in the Fast and the Fucking Furious. Yeah, do something <laughs> else. Man. Do something else, please. Well, he's got two Fast, he's got a Fast and the Furious and the Guardians of the Galaxy and an Avatar film in his coming uh, films, apparently. Uh, and F9, which is Fast and Furious. So two yeah. different Fast and Furious films. I mean, I guess if you're going to get paid for doing the same thing again and again. Um, that's, that's true. I, mean, I was actually looking at a Vin Diesel film the other day. I was actually watching a clip of one. That was a long story about why. And hmm. if you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, he did have such promise. Yeah. You know, if you look at Saving Private Ryan, his character wasn't out of a big role, but he was memorable. Hmm. Um, Boiler it, Room. Boiler Room was the one I was talking about. He plays, again, a smallish role, but incredibly memorable in, I think, a massively underrated film. That's great. Um, and he's he's really, really, I mean, he, I feel like he was one of those actors that you got more interested in what was going on when he was on screen. Yeah. Because of how yeah. he played his character. He was a eminently watchable actor and character. And, like, the fact that he had such promise at the time mm. and has gone on to do, well, I mean, like he's a big star, I guess. Um, yeah. So little of interest is what I was, I think I'm saying. He's done so little of interest since then. And yeah. you sort of say he's slipped into basically this cliche of being 
media and making mediocre action films that make a billion dollars because people are bored. He's kind of a, finan- a more financially successful version of what Sylvester Stallone was like back in the 80s and 90s. He's, where- he's, the, he's the upgraded version of Jared Butler, that's what he is. Yeah, kind of, kind of. And Jared, I, I, would, I would just like to see Vin do something to really sink his teeth into. Hell, even put him as the the updated sergeant in the remake of the interview that we've been spit- pitching. Yeah, that could work. Uh, he need to. I think he need to bring his game an A game. We haven't seen in in many many years in a long time. But you know he he could he could do it. He could potentially do it. But yeah, it was just it's just a real real disappointment because in a tidal wave of superhero and enhanced slash augmented super people movies, this is, this literally doesn't even try to do something new, and it's a real shame. It's a real shame because there is some talent involved here. They just this is borderline Uwe Boll territory. Wow, that is a that's a huge statement. Yeah, yeah. But that's all I have to say on that. Well, I, I I had seen it floating around and it looked awful, and I'm happy to keep giving it a miss. Yep, yep. Now, should we go to our, our final topic of discussion? Let's. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've teased it for a few weeks in a row, but finally, Travis has played a little bit. We are going to be talking about the Xbox Game Pass exclusive Grounded. Super early access. Yeah, yeah. Super early access. Um, It's um, for the uninitiated. It's You can play it solo. You can play as a party. And you are a group of people who have been miniaturized and are lost in the garden. And you have must survive. It's a crafting and survival game. Um, very much living out your Honey, I Shrunk the Kids dream. Fantasy. It's surprising yeah. that no one's come up with his idea and tried it before. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. But interestingly, I did see there was a an interesting alternative that seems to be coming out on uh, from an independent um, company, f- especially for Nintendo Switch, but I think it's coming to other platforms as well. I can't remember the name of it, though. So suddenly, suddenly they've gone, oh, you know what's popular? <laughs> Let's go cool. back to 1990. <laughs> now, uh, as we said, this is in... Early, early, early access. So mm. it's a way off from being finished. Um, mm. This is a crafting survival game. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like every crafting survival game you've ever played. So you have mm-hmm. to quickly gather resources. Uh, your first few quests are involved in building tools and uh, weapons mm-hmm. and clothing or armor, for want of a better term, to survive. And then you need to start solving some puzzles mm-hmm. in order to sort of progress the very limited amount of story and offer along. Mm. Yeah. Um, I should be up front of this. I've seen a lot of people who've said this is really good and they really liked it. Mm. I, I was bored. Um, I've played a lot of crafting survival games over the years. This felt like crafting survival game number 621. Um, I did, Yes, the setting is a little different to most, um, but it didn't really differentiate itself enough for me to be anything, feel any way particularly original. It's super weird that Obsidian made this. This is way outside their comfort yeah. zone. 
Well, it seems like this is for 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 those who might not know Obsidian. They kind of got uh, got famous, I guess. For the, the, did they do New Vegas? Uh, I think they did. Yeah, yeah. So Fallout New Vegas, which garnered a lot of praise, and um, they have since become one of Microsoft Game Studios' um, in-house teams, and they are working on some uh, like. I guess you could call them Elder Scrolls killers for the next generation, uh, which it seemed to be a long way off by the sounds of it. But um, they definitely have their strong, strong roots in those classic RPGs, um, particularly Western-style RPG games. Uh, So having this, it seems like it's probably a small little team, almost like a passion project for them. Coming out with this, it's, it's a curious... It's, 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 it's a thing from the ocean. I also know they did a little game called Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2, which... Uh, oh, but no one played those. No one played them. They're not memorable at all. No, um, no. But, yeah, so to go into making a survival um, survival crafting game mm. is very much, you know, they're famous for their story-driven stuff. Mm-hmm. And maybe the final product will be story-driven. We don't know. Um, there's a little bit of story here, but it's very, very limited. Um yeah, I can say I just, I just thought it was utterly generic. Um, I got through, uh, made my tools and bit shit out of some ants and shit. Um, I there was a puzzle to be solved about redirecting lasers, which I I managed to figure out, which is quite surprising considering how bad I am at puzzles. Um, <laughs> and then you sort of there's it, it, the game does direct you to uh, an underground science lab that your uncle or something owned or built. Mm-hmm. And you need to be like attacked by a fucking robot, which I died twice trying to beat. Um, and then it was kind of like, "Yay, you beat the robot, build stuff." Yeah, that's kind of where the the narrative uh, element of the story kind of stops for the time being. They are doing quite a lot of updates to it, um, but I kind of agree with you in that it's it's somewhat generic. It's almost like kind of like um baby's first world world builder game but if baby was 25 years old and didn't want to <laughs> play with pokemon <laughs> it's it's it it's very very simple and i appreciate the simplicity of it but you know i i, I don't think we can can be too too critical of it because it is still very early access and they are doing a, I think, considering how early this game feels, the um, the stability of the game seems pretty good. It looks generally pretty good. Um, it plays fine. If you've played any first-person shooter kind of game, you'll be able to pick this up pretty easily, I think. This is very easy to uh, for, for people to access and start playing. There's just not a lot of stuff in there to do at this stage. That that thing that was my objection. It's kind of like, hey, build build a base. I'm like, where with what? <laughs> I mean, like you know, it didn't really seem like a whole lot of places to build bases with. And yeah, it. You, I won't disagree with any about it. It's stable. It does look fine. The art style is. It feels like it's aimed at a younger audience. Yeah, but then yeah, there are spiders in the game. They fucking terrifying. They are terrifying because they are huge. Um, and they look very it was realistic, but it's the first time I've ever seen an arachnophobia setting in a game before. So <laughs> if you have arachnophobia, you can turn it on, and you can actually basically turn them into big blobs. 
Um, <laughs> but, but, and, like, but yeah, you see, I mean, kudos to developers of that because they've succeeded in that sense that yeah. seeing your spider for the first time, you're like, fuck. Uh, yeah. And basically everything you would imagine a, sp- a giant spider to be, um, mm. they, they, they basically one-shot you, um, yeah. and, which, is, which is fucking annoying. Um, and they just come along and destroy your base, no worries at all. Um, so, but that, that, that doesn't quite click with the idea of it being for kids when you've got terrifying giant spider monsters in it. You're like, um, so that, that, that's, that was a little bit confusing. I was sort of thinking this is for kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's accessible. It looks fine. Um, it plays fine. And I, like I said, I I'm the outlier on this one because I've seen a number of reviewers who I'm a big fan of and I have a lot of respect for come out and say that they really really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, so I, it's as you say, if you have got Game Pass, you might as well. If you like a survival crafting type game, you, you might as well check it out and have a look at it. You might be you might find that uh, unlike me, you, you get quite a bit out of it, and especially if you're the kind of person who's good at making their own fun yeah absolutely i think that this in in some ways it's it's almost like um uh, the honey i shrunk your kids game version of sea of thieves when that first launched there was you could make a lot of fun if you got your own crew together and you you had a fun crew to do things with and i think that that's probably quite true for this game um but much like sea of thieves there wasn't enough in there to to kind of inspire you on as you went through just story based wise um so i think that going into as the as the game develops as we get into xbox series x and whatever the future may hold for all of that stuff i think there's a lot of potential in this game to be something something of interest but uh for now i don't think you're necessarily missing out if you don't join now but if you've got time, if you want a game that you can play with your with your younger audience, generally speaking, if you don't mind the kind of going back to the PG movie era of um, uh, some of those ones that genuinely had some scary moments in them, um, but overall, so like, yeah, that's okay. You you're probably going to have some good fun with this, I think. Potentially, I'll be very curious to see. I'll be definitely interested to take a look at it when we see the final product. Yeah, could be quite some time away, but mm. um, it's a solid start. Yeah, I have a feeling it's probably not going to be for me though. I've recently picked up a game called Seven Days to Die, mm-hmm. which is a zombie-based survival um, crafting type game. Well, that's a yeah. totally new era of uh, gaming mm. and styles for you, isn't it, Travis? It is. Well, no, it's, it's certainly not well known for liking zombie things, but no. um, it's been out for a few years and it's still in early access as well. So, um, but it, that's a lot more fun to me in the sense that the actual subject matter feels a little bit more mm. my jam, but where I never really wanted to play a game based on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But um, <laughs> but that said, though, it's Seven Days to Die is by no means as polished as, as Grounded. So if you're looking yeah. for a really great polished version of something like that, have a look at it. Yeah. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you, everyone, for, for tuning in, either live or later on when we get released on uh, podcast services on Friday evening or Saturday when I get around to doing it. 
Um, this episode, we reviewed the 1998 Hugo Weaving starring The Interview. Travis talked about Lovecraft Country. I talked about Bloodshot, and we shared our thoughts on the early access of Grounded. Next week, I am taking over the reins for the Chain Movie Sessions, going to Gallipoli, directed by Peter Weir, starring a young Mel Gibson. And we will have a couple of other movies, TV shows, or games that we will have consumed in the next week to talk about as well. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night.